This is an amazing honor and a privilege to serve these communities, to serve you, and I will not let you down. This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. And I'm Vancouver Sun columnist Rob Shaw. It's time to go in the house and go inside BC politics. Thanks for joining us for another podcast. Rob Shaw here, my colleague in crime, Michael J. Smith, has disappeared. I don't know where he is, but uh, he's certainly not here this week. So we have filled his seat with two excellent replacements this week. We have Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Vaughn, thanks for coming. It's good to be here, and it's good to know that it takes at least two people to replace Mike Smith. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) something like that. And uh, Richard Zussman from Global News. Richard, thanks for coming on. First time, long time. Good to be here. Yeah, and this is a time we should plug the book while you're on the... Yeah, we've met before, right, you and I? I think so. We communicated via internet. (laughs) Richard is This is just shameless, you know. (laughs) Uh, You can still, on Amazon, get a copy of our national best-selling book, A Matter of Confidence, uh, Inside BC's Political Battle. I would recommend... In fact... And independent bookstores across British Columbia. We're just going to pause here briefly so that you can press pause in your podcast, order the book, and come back. Yeah, exactly. uh, And then we will continue on. You heard off the top there, Nanaimo Lady Smith's new Emma. MLA-elect Paul Manley, I'm not going to let you down, amazing honor and a privilege, a lot of um, celebratory mood in the Green headquarters on by-election night in Nanaimo Ladysmith. Richard, you were at the NDP headquarters for Bob Chamberlain. Talk us through what that night was like. Did they have any idea that the freight train was coming their way? The NDP, who had held this seat uh, prior to Sheila Malcolmson, the MP, resigning, to take a provincial seat. Uh, looked like this was the NDP's riding to lose. What was it like being there on a by-election night? Yeah, it's funny because when you lose this badly, uh, I think you'd probably get a sense at the doors that things were not going to go your way. But the NDP was not showing their cards in terms of one sign earlier on on election day was how hard they were working in areas where they have historically done well to pull the vote. So they were in some of the uh, core areas of Nanaimo near downtown, desperately trying to get their supporters to the polls. And when you know it's going to be a bad night, you try to get every one of your core supporters. Rather than to go to areas where you're hoping for a breakthrough, you focus in places where you know you're going to do okay. And that's what the NDP did. I probably should have picked up on that when I was out there as a sign that things were not going to go so well. And then as the night went on, you could tell by about the 10th or 15th poll out of 250, the NDP knew it was over. You know, they weren't rallying their troops to show up. The crowd was dwindling at the event. Uh, their staff were taking frantic phone calls outside of the room. And so I think very early on when those results started coming back and they could see the Greens were winning, you know, not just in areas where they've done well in the past, but in areas where the NDP has done well and areas where the Conservatives have done well, when they saw the Greens doing well in those areas, they knew it was over. The NDP uh, went down 10% in the popular vote, but they also lost 14,000 votes. Now, I don't know what you make of that because the voter turnout actually dropped from 75% the last election to 41%. So obviously fewer people were voting. But you saw the Liberals lose 12,000 votes, 12% of the popular vote. The Conservatives were down. Uh, The Greens went up 17% in the popular vote. They only picked up another 1,000 actual votes, but it was enough to shift things. Is there any explanation when you look at those numbers, Vaughn, on what exactly was going on in voter minds in Nanaimo Ladysmith? 
Well, I think the first thing you point out is that in January, the New Democrats did very well in the by-election in Nanaimo. They needed to win that to have a secure hold on government. The voters got the message, voted for them, and they took almost half the vote there. So the the by-election in May is completely different. I think an awful lot of people weren't even aware there was a by-election. Uh, it's not clear what the stakes were. And I think it was called at a time when uh, voters were particularly disenchanted uh, with the established federal parties. So they took a chance on the Greens. I think it's interesting what you pointed out. The green vote dropped in January massively. It came up about 1,000 votes this time. Will that translate into a showing in the next general election? I think it will depend partly on whether or not the federal parties can engage the voters at the level they fail to do uh, in this by-election in Nanaimo. And it will partly depend on how the Green Party plays it. Are they able to finally turn this into a claim to be the fourth party on the national scene rather than a party that elects its leader and nobody else? Does it mean anything for the Greens provincially, Richard? Do you think like Andrew Weaver, I'm sure he feels like he's the champion here. <laughs> this is, I know Elizabeth May has said this is proof that we can get another Green in the House of Commons, but does it prove anything for the provincial Greens, do you think? I don't think so. There could be some wiggle room in different ridings where the green brand, as Vaughn mentioned, keeps getting stronger and stronger and, and becomes relevant on a national stage. And as more people start seeing others vote for the greens, they can think to themselves, well, maybe it's okay to vote green. Uh, they could be an alternative for the NDP. The NDP really, really has to be smarting after this by-election. You know, they own Vancouver Island federally, they own it provincially, and I think this is one of those things where if the Greens can get footholds, uh, it could really hurt uh, the NDP, uh, both provincially and federally long term. I, I don't think short term, as Vaughn mentioned, the Nanaimo by-election was a reflection that the, the people there wanted to see the NDP continue to govern, so they made sure that the NDP uh, had their representative. But I think ultimately uh, it's all about brand building. And, and confidence in that brand. And, and the Greens have a lot of work to do provincially around, you know, building an infrastructure, campaigning, understanding where their strengths are. All of that aside, I think this victory shows uh, even more, you know, when we see what happened in Prince Edward Island, uh, on Vancouver City Council with a breakthrough of Green candidates there, that that brand is stronger than ever. Are we going to see the Green wave? Probably not. But it's all part of a process for a party that is getting to the point of, of serious relevancy and even almost mainstream uh, status. And you also on uh, Global News on election night, I think you called it a mulligan uh, by-election, because which is probably more of a reflection of your golf game than anything else. <laughs> but, but basically, you know, there wasn't a lot of consequences, unlike, as Vaughn mentioned, the provincial by-election where the yeah. government's fate was in the balance. Like, can we look at maybe this in a way and think – this was a true reflection of maybe Nanaimo voters when they were freed from the shackles of feeling like the weight of something was on their on their shoulders, that they were deciding big issues. They just voted their hearts, as the Greens might say, Vaughn. Well, apart from your book and the one that you wrote with Richard, uh, another really interesting book about BC politics was written by Prof at UBC a generation ago. He looked at what happened in BC one year when we had a provincial election in the middle of a federal election. And the two outcomes were dramatically different. And he concluded from that 
that British Columbians inhabit two political worlds. Two political worlds, the title of the book. And he basically says they vote differently federally than they do provincially because the parties themselves don't match up and they see things differently when they're voting nationally as Canadians. They often cast a protest vote. They don't feel connected to Ottawa. When they vote provincially, they know the stakes. They're picking the people that are going to govern them next time, and they tend to gravitate to their party labels. So I don't know whether we can make all that much about what happened in a by-election in Nanaimo this spring. Uh, I'm not sure it will even carry over into the result in Nanaimo in the federal election this fall, uh, and I don't think it means much for provincial politics. And that's where that mulligan thing comes in. Like, I, I really believe that. I was thinking a lot about this by-election. I was, I was getting re- uh, ready to report from there, and I, you know, we've talked in this country for so long about a green breakthrough. Like, are people ready for the greens? And and the unshackled term you use is a good one. I, I think people think, well, this is a perfect chance to try them on for size. It has no impact on the way that we're governed. It has no impact really on, uh, you know, right, left, center, what you believe. It's sort of do I want to see what a green MP feels like, looks like, how they deal with me as a constituent? Am I better represented in Ottawa? Paul Manley now gets a head start on the competition because he has to run again in October for his job, but he now has five months of a constituency budget, of an ad budget, of going to Ottawa, of getting media attention. All of that will help, but I think the voter will get to watch him in turn and see how does he look, how does he do, Do I feel like I'm getting the services I need from a Green MP representing me as I did with an NDP MP or potentially a Conservative or Liberal MP? Yeah, I mean, it shows voters that the world doesn't end when you test out a new representative in Ottawa or Victoria. So that's good for the Greens. Let's play a clip from Sheila Malcolmson. So the NDP MP for Nanaimo Smith resigned. It was a shuffle of seats. Leonard Krogh, the local MLA, became the city's mayor. She is now here as the MLA uh, Richard, your wife, Lisa Yuzda from News 1130, caught up with her in the hall, and I stuck my tape recorder in this clip. So let's hear what Sheila Malcolmson has to say just on maybe some of the tactics involved here. I think yesterday's vote was a vote for action on climate change, vote for environment, and, uh, and an organized campaign that I give the Greens credit for. And Paul, Paul Manley did a great job. I honestly didn't think Trudeau was going to call a by-election, and, and we started late. Okay, so I honestly didn't think Trudeau was going to call the by-election, <laughs> which is a very interesting comment. And I, what do you make of that, Rich? Did you pick up any of that, that scrambling from the New Democrats that they maybe missed the mark on <laughs> actually getting organized for this thing? Yeah, and this, this drives me crazy. I, I spoke to Paul Manley about this in the lead-up to the by-election, and I asked him a question about how this was going to be different than 2015. He ran in 2015, finished fourth. And he said, well, we called as soon as Sheila Malcolmson rumors started that she was going to leave to run provincially. We called Elections Canada and asked if she resigns at this point, will there be a by-election? And Elections Canada said, yes, there will be a by-election. And it's crazy because throughout the process, Sheila Malcolmson was telling us all, Oh, we don't need another, we don't need a by-election. We're going to keep the community office open. It will go all the way until the federal election. And so the people of Nanaimo Ladysmith will not be misrepresented 
when I resign to go provincially because they're just going to open this community office. I don't think anyone even called Elections Canada from <laughs> Sheila Malcolmson's office to ask about it. So looking back on this, it's crazy that she was selling this to us as the media. She was selling it to the voters who would ask her, well, Sheila, isn't this a waste of money that you're leaving to go provincial and there's going to have to be this expensive by-election, more than a million bucks? Oh, no, 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 don't worry about that. There's not going to be one. They didn't even check. Like, it is crazy to me. And clearly, it, and the NDP also, to that point, weren't ready. Bob Chamberlain was nominated late. They needed to get the signs printed. They needed to get an election team, a lot of which they brought in, you know, familiar names to political observers, Marie Della Mattia, Glenn Sanford. You know, these are people who helped John Horgan become the premier. They brought them in rather than grassroots local Nanaimoites because they could have been tied up because they weren't prepared to run this by-election. That's not the only reason they lost, but it's obviously part of the reason they finished third. It's an amazing tactical error from the NDP, Vaughn. Is uh, I mean, do those things kind of, you know, kneecap a campaign before they begin to the fact that the Greens, not only did the Greens get a head start, but now, as Richard pointed out, the Greens can just keep running. Paul Manley's going to have only have a couple weeks in the House of Commons by the time he's sworn in before the, it dissolves for an election. He's got the team in place. They've got the voters in mind. They've got the get out the vote campaign. Money. So are tactical errors built on tactical errors here for the next election? Yeah, but I mean, look, I think what they did was they concluded that Trudeau would do with Nanaimo what he's done with the other two vacancies in Parliament, one's in Nova Scotia, the other one's in Quebec. He's not called the by-elections there. He's most likely going to do is leave those so close to the October 21st general election that when he calls them, they will be preempted by the general election call a few weeks later. And I'm guessing that the New Democrats assumed he would do the same for Nanaimo because they probably asked themselves, why would he call a by-election in a seat that the Liberals are unlikely to win? And of course, what, they finished fourth, Richard? And this one was different too because of the timing. So there are very clear rules in Elections Canada, which are very hard. They're clear rules yeah. that are hard to interpret because you have six months to call the by-election. But what Sheila Malcolmson was telling people was you can wait till six months and yeah. then call it for a time after the federal writ period. But Elections Canada told Paul Manley and others, no, you can't actually do that. There's a time frame. So the NDP didn't know that. And, and I don't blame them. I was confused as well, trying to figure out whether this was going to be required. But the other open federal seats, the resignations happened after Malcolmson. So the window um, is shorter. So I think Elections Canada needs to have clear rules online so people can interpret. But again, these parties have access to people from Elections Canada. And if Paul Manley says they called and asked, then everybody else should have called and asked as well. A lot of people are going to be sifting through the tea leaves up there uh, trying to figure out what, if any, clues to, to interpret the minds of voters. We are seeing change votes across the country. Governments changing. Uh, uh, yeah. Voters are difficult to predict. And I don't know if this helped or added to any of the evidence that... Uh... You know, that's a good point. I was on a panel with Chantal Hibert of the Toronto Star just last week. She pointed out that, that since the spring of 2015, so just before the last federal election, uh, I think nine or 10 Canadian governments have gone to the voters seeking re-election. 
and only two have managed to get across the finish line, Saskatchewan and I guess Nova Scotia. Everybody else has been handed their walking papers by the voters. And it happened twice in Alberta with incumbent governments since 2015. It happened in B.C. to a degree. And as you know, the liberals lost their majority. If we go back to the financial crisis in 2008, uh, what we found in that period was that most incumbent governments were being reelected. It was dangerous, risky, scary times, and people don't vote for change. But now we've been in a four-year run where it's scary as an incumbent to go back to the voters. I wonder if, you know, if Oregon has sat down and done the math on that and gone, why would I rush why would I rush trying to get reelected here uh, when clearly the mood of the electorate is, uh, I don't know if I like your looks anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Trudeau should be worried as well if that pattern holds. Yeah, and Horgan doesn't have a compelling issue either to force an election, which we've talked about in yeah. previous podcasts. You might just get punished from voter fatigue. But anyways, moving on to some provincial issues, and maybe this is an election issue we're going to talk about next, money laundering, the never-ending <laughs> serialized docudrama of money laundering that has been perpetuated by... Uh, Attorney General David Eby's uh, digging into this issue and also his decision to release what appears to be chapter by chapter <laughs> of the Peter German report. And we got two chapters this week on the issue of money laundering and luxury vehicles. And let's hear Peter German off the top talk a bit about uh, luxury vehicles and, uh, and what kind of basically money laundering means in that sector. So <laughs> organized criminals don't drive smart cars. They like the bling. So they like, you know, $300,000 cars. And also this, uh, Vaughn, this idea that with that price of a luxury vehicle, the ability to take in bags of cash and not have auto dealers, you know, have to check the source and the value of the car that can then be resold overseas. There's a kind of an area there where money laundering is proliferated, not to mention tax credits are folded into that as well. So. Peter German has a wonderful term of phrase, and whatever else you might say about him, he understands the news media and what drives stories. He's, he gives vivid anecdotes. <laughs> he speaks very well, and he's got these lovely phrases. Another one that's great is whack-a-mole. He says, you know, when you, when you go after laundered cash and you smack it down in one place, it pops up somewhere else. So last year it was casinos. No more bags of cash showing up at the casinos. So now they're showing up at the car dealerships. And it's vivid, powerful stuff. Clearly there's a problem. 
clearly it needs to be dealt with. The thing that jumped out at me reading his report is that an awful lot of the remedies that need to happen here are actually at the federal level. So uh, David Eby needs to stay and the New Democrats need to stay on pretty good terms with Ottawa because there's a lot of things that could be done to stop this. Many of them need to happen at the federal level. The feds in their budget this year promise to get going on it. But an awful lot needs to be done. And clearly there have been a lot of abuses going on here for some time. One of the the biggest abuses was PST rebates. Let's hear David Eby on this issue because it turns out $85 million in PST was refunded to maybe criminals, we're not entirely sure, but some criminals <laughs> in there, uh, thousands of vehicles as part of this kind of uh, refund on provincial sales tax for exporting of of uh, luxury automobiles. So let's hear what David Eby says on that. So he's saying surprised, disturbing. He didn't know. I mean, I didn't know this either. I don't think anyone really knew. What did you make of of that uh, part of the report? We have this uh, wizard at Global BC named Tavis Dunn who builds our graphics. And if you've ever watched the News Hour, you've seen his work. And he is very good. He's unbelievable. And he built this graphic for me for this story, um, which I think helps explain this situation well. Which were the accusations coming forward from the Peter German report is that these vehicles are purchased in Metro Vancouver, uh, likely with the proceeds of crime, sometimes in bags overflowing with cash. They then are shipped over mainly to Asia where they can be resold for a lot more money. And then that profit comes back uh, to British Columbia, again, likely to be used in illicit crime. And there's a few different things there. The one is this rebate program, as E.B. mentioned it, surprised by it, that when you get a vehicle in Canada and it's for use outside of the country, you get your PST rebated. It would be if you buy a sweater at uh, the Gap and then go across, you can get your PST rebated for that sweater. And these are $500,000 sweaters. So slightly more expensive <laughs> than a sweater. And so it's a lot of cash we're talking about, millions of dollars in this tax loophole. That's problematic. EB says they're fixing it. The other point that I found really interesting uh, in his media uh, availability was when, and he slipped it in there and we used it in the news hour, talking about how German found there was basically no enforcement at the port. Yes. Where these cars are getting loaded up. And then he snuck in without much fanfare. We've now started to try to implement our own police force. And and I think we need more information from him about what that means. But he mentioned they're working with ICBC. They're working with the RCMP to try to establish an enforcement team to um, crack down on some of this behavior we've seen uh, in German reports. He says we can't wait for the feds anymore. The other you mentioned, you know, chapter by chapter, page by page gets released out. 
the first few pages we saw were all about how there was no federal team working here on investigating money laundering. It seems like BC has decided they're going to go at it alone. How quickly they can do that? How is it going to work? Will it happen before a federal election? All good questions. We don't know the answers. But I found it really interesting. He snuck that in there in one of his answers and then didn't come back to explain because that would be a huge policy shift for the government if they're trying to go with enforcement alone and build their own team here. There used to be a a police force in the port, uh, which was disbanded 20 years ago. Uh, I don't know if the public knew that, but apparently the criminals did because there's (laughs) there's two kinds of vehicles being shipped through the port. These these re-export, these exported to China for resale, that's legal. The cash may be illegal, but the transaction, the selling them to China is legal. But the other thing that German says in this report, 20% of the vehicles that are stolen in British Columbia are never recovered. They disappear. And the assumption is they disappear into containers in the port of Vancouver and they're shipped off. Some of them are shipped ill-gotten gains to Asian countries. One of the ones that jumped out at me was, oh, we're starting to lose SUVs and four-wheel drives. Those are going to Africa where these big powerful like the Land Rover and that are great in heavy terrain and they're a premium. And as German says, for the cost of stealing them, and maybe 10% of the value to ship them, you get the full cash value back on these. And again, we're not searching the containers. We're not tracking them. There really isn't a very good police force anymore in the courts, although officially we're supposed to be watching it. So there's a lot of action needed there as well. And again, the ports are federal. So you need Ottawa's cooperation on this to make it work. So David Eby says that Cabin is still considering the idea of a public inquiry. Take this report package it up with the casino report. Um, Think ahead to the idea of the real estate version of this report, which is uh, there's a second also investigation into that. Put it all together, Vaughn, start with you. What do you think on the idea of a public inquiry? Getting closer or further away from that? Politically, I can see why the government wants to do it. Uh, It would be a chance to beat up on the previous government, point out a lot of things they did wrong, but I don't know if it'll provide solutions particularly since most many of the things that need to happen are federal and they need the cooperation of the federal government to do this. So I think the concern, E.B. himself has expressed it, is he's got a budget in mind, 10 to $15 million. He's got a time frame in mind, a two-year public inquiry. But then he said, what if all it finds out is what we already know? What if all the solutions are federal? Does it really accomplish anything other than Go through about $15 million worth of legal fees. And my guess is, by the way, it'll be like a home renovation. It'll cost twice as much and take twice as long. So that's my take on it. Richard, what do you think? I think at this point, the public pressure will be so great that cabinet will feel that they almost have no choice. And we could see, you know, Vaughn puts forward some very good thoughts on what they're contemplating. And you could see a decision from... John Horgan sitting at the top of that table and David Eby as attorney general and all their cabinet colleagues saying, you know, we know the public sentiment, but we're going to go out and explain to them why an inquiry is not the best option. But I think at this point, you have so many voices calling for an inquiry. You have allies of this government calling for an inquiry. I found it really interesting. Two of the most vocal uh, people in all of this, Brad West in uh, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, and Christine Boyle, a city councillor in Vancouver. 
Brad West is an incredibly close friend and colleague of Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth, a guy that many believes could replace Mike Farnworth as the MLA for that riding at some point. And Christine Boyle is a new city councillor in Vancouver. David Eby endorsed her before the municipal election. They are close politically and personally. And I think those voices um, help add to the credibility for calls at a municipal level for this inquiry. So I, we were told yesterday it's close. We were told when David Eby spoke to reporters it was close that we're getting to this decision. Obviously, it's complicated. I think the public doesn't have a great understanding of what an inquiry could accomplish, but people want to see heads roll. They want to see the ability to catch the bad guys, to make the politicians pay that made mistakes and allowed money laundering. And I think ultimately the best way to do that is through the inquiry and the public has this thirst for blood that we've seen an impact on money laundering. You mentioned look ahead to the housing one. I'm sure there's going to be stories there where a house was bought with laundered money for $1.5 million that was valued at $1.1 and all of a sudden every other house in that neighborhood went up because of the comps and everybody else that had to buy in was hurt by that. Everyone who already owned benefited, but it had a substantial impact on regular, everyday British Columbians. And I think all of that has, has stirred up the pot enough that people want to see somebody held responsible. I agree with you what people want to have to see where the public mood is on this. I would just point out that a public inquiry cannot charge anyone with a crime, cannot send anyone to jail, and in fact, can get in the way of doing that if the police or a prosecutor are in the middle of a criminal investigation already. I've always wondered if at the cabinet there's a split between maybe some of the veteran MLAs and some of the newer MLAs on this issue. If you're David Eby, you're looking at this going, let's let's just go yes. after this. But if you're Mike Farnworth, who, uh, you know, Richard, uh, you had a global news story where um, they pointed out this goes back to the night. Some money laundering issues go back to the 1990s under the NDP government where Mike Farnworth was the minister, you're probably a lot less enthused about a public inquiry than the newcomers to the cabinet table. And I wonder if there, there might be that kind of split there. I think more than that, I think the, the people who were in the government in the 1990s know how little a public inquiry can actually accomplish, how much they get caught up in legal battles over access to information. And the problem in this case, which is that a provincial government cannot actually investigate federal agencies without a lot of cooperation that may not be there. Let's do two quick topics. Uh, we're going to get through these pretty fast here. The first one is on gas prices. I'm going to play two clips from John Horgan. The first one is on his conversation with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. He wants to talk about getting some more uh, refined gasoline in the pipeline, whether the Prime Minister is uh, keen on that. And then the second one is on going to the British Columbia Utilities Commission uh, to look at the price of gas and do an investigation on that. Let's play those clips uh, back to back here. I spoke with the Prime Minister yesterday. As you'll remember, I hope to speak to him earlier than that, but uh, uh, flood events and other events in eastern Canada prevented that from happening. So um, we had a candid discussion. I laid out for him my concerns about the inordinate spike in retail gas prices in British Columbia that was not connected to any uh, policy decision. It just seemed to be, in my opinion, uh, gouging, uh, but that was my opinion. We talked about it. I said that I'm dis disappointed to see 
so much diluted bitumen coming into the existing pipe and uh, at the expense of refined product. He understood that. So he talked about the NEB processes. I reminded him he owned the pipeline and he concluded that he would ask his officials to take a look at it. So I was encouraged by that. What, what can the BCUC figure out that you and Don Wright and the provincial government can't? A, a common set of facts. Uh, one of the challenges we have, and we're gonna, I'm about to go into the legislature where the opposition will yell at me and talk about their billboards uh, blaming me for a 40 cent spike in gas prices. That doesn't help me, it doesn't help you, it doesn't help the traveling public. It may help the BC Liberals, but a, an F minus, I mean, I'm a hard marker, but an F minus from BC business tells me that everyone benefits if we have a common set of facts that you can report on with confidence that it's not spin. The Utilities Commission is an independent regulator. They will, be, they will compel testimony. They will talk to people in the industry. They will talk to consumers. They will talk to the people affected by this and come up with some rationale for what's happened that we can all agree to. Vaughn, uh, what do you think of the prime, this idea that the Prime Minister said, uh, okay, well, I'll look into whether as the owner of the pipeline, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, I can reduce diluted bitumen, increase refined gasoline. Is that is it just stolen for time? I hear you, Premier. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, want, I want to see you turn this into an election issue in British Columbia. Uh, I like the fact that uh, Richard, uh, our colleague at Global Television, Keith Baldry, worked it out. I think this is the eighth position John Morgan has taken on what to do about gas prices. He's a populist. He promised to make life in BC more affordable, and he's squirming on this one, even though I don't think he can be blamed for most of it. But man, is he trying to come up with some way to put the blame somewhere else? What about the um, BCUC punt, Richard? I, mean, I, I John Horgan makes a mention in the clip we just played there about, I'm about to go into the legislature. I'm going to face an opposition that's going to yell at me. They've got billboards up on the highways in Metro Vancouver blaming me. I, do you, does any of that look like uh, the pressure's getting to him? And yeah, I think the pressure's getting to him big time. I think this is an Achilles heel for the government and they've known it for the last month or so and are struggling to find answers. I think the answer is blame the feds, blame the feds, blame the feds. And, you know, I, I know the public doesn't love when politicians defer, but they for sure don't care about common sets of facts as Horgan lays it out. You know, the BCUC is going to come present, what, seven common facts that all British Columbians must recite when they pump their gas? You know, <laughs> this gas is provided to you by, like, it's it's one of those things that unless they come in and put measures, people are not going to care. They want to see cheaper gas. I think ultimately the feds are the ones responsible for the refinery issue, but also the taxation issue and much larger, the gouging issue. John Horgan calls them gougers. He has no proof of this. The feds are the only ones that can force the oil companies uh, to, uh, you know, regulate themselves and not price fix and all that stuff that's on the feds. And I think with an election approaching, Horgan needs to be more vocal not just when he's on the phone with the prime minister, but every day when he speaks to us saying, I'm asking the feds to track, crack down on these gas companies that are making more profits in BC than anywhere else because of the margins, the largest margins in North America uh, for profits for gas companies. That needs to change. Okay, quick free for all here. We're just going to go around the table. Uh, Vaughn, I think you want to talk about forestry. You've written a number of columns on the forestry issue the problems that the Horgan government's facing on that. And then Richard, 
maybe maybe hit us up on photo radar sure. and then we'll wrap up uh, we'll wrap up the show here the premier wrote a letter to a bunch of forest companies on the 1st of april saying i want to work with you together on uh, revitalizing the industry in the interior making it more competitive making us more innovative i promise you we're not going to be doing top down solutions so we're going to work together and collaboratively uh, he repeated that in a speech a few days later and then the following week his um, Minister Forrest, Doug Donaldson, brought in a bill that uh, they hadn't even consulted the industry on that changed the tenure rules, the timber cutting transfers all over the interior. The industry, not surprisingly, feels blindsided. It says it hasn't been consulted. It says it wasn't consulted on that big caribou rescue plan in the north either. And some of the industry players are saying we can't see investing in British Columbia right now because we don't trust the government. So that's the issue. Uh, I think the premier has already, we've seen uh, Rob, that the premier stepped in, recognized that they'd blown it on the caribou rescue plan, and has picked a former liberal cabinet minister, Blair Lextrom, to try to rescue that. I think he should consider as well going to the industry to find out what their concerns are on this legislation. There's no need to pass it this month. They could put it off to the fall and consult the industry in the interim. And if he wants the industry to be investing in British Columbia and collaborating on a vision for the future, he shouldn't be punching them in the nose and blindsiding them. Yeah, it must be a pride issue for John Horgan, too. Fashions himself as an old forestry worker and someone who understands the industry to get booted by all the companies. They're saying he's doing his government's doing a horrible job managing this file is a pride issue for him. Richard, photo radar slid under the radar this week, so to speak, uh, but uh, activating red light cameras that exist in 35 intersections to get speeders tickets on green lights, not just red lights, green and yellow lights. Uh, I don't know. I, I think that's going to blow up a little bit on the government. But what do you make of it? Can I do my best Mike Farnworth impression for you? Sure. This is not photo radar, Rob. This is not photo radar. You know, the government wants you to believe this isn't the hugely unpopular photo radar where, you know, officers were tucked around corners and vans catching people speeding. The big difference clearly with these green light speed cameras is that the intersections will be well labeled. And I think this is good policy. We should be having areas, every intersection should be equipped to catch speeders and catch people who run red lights but the problem is, are they going to use this as a cash cow? Sure they are. Is it actually going to make a difference in terms of safety on the road? We've seen this example in Alberta where they've had this technology forever. And we haven't seen crashes go down at intersections for to a huge extent. But they keep the technology there without changing it because they love the money that comes in from these speeding tickets that they get. And I think... That's going to be an issue going forward as we start to see that data come out. They're getting activated at the end of the summer, the early fall. Um, politically, as you mentioned, this is this is bad. Like, you know, you're already paying crazy amounts for ICBC, for gas, and now the likelihood that you'll get a speeding ticket has gone up exponentially because police forces don't have to set up speed traps. They can have these 35 cameras on 24-7 to catch people and send them tickets. One estimate is $80 million you could, the government could generate with a program like this. The question is, does the money go to municipalities? They get the net revenue from traffic tickets now. They use it on unconditional grants. The government wants to reopen that negotiation, you don't reopen negotiations to take less. The government's <laughs> going to want more out of the cash pot that this generates. And there may be a fight with municipalities down the road on that too. So 
Lots of interesting issues. Never a dull week in BC politics. Vaughn, Richard, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, hope to have you on again soon. And uh, uh, f- uh, subscribe to the podcast on Apple, uh, iTunes, or in your favorite podcast listening device. We will be back next week for more on BC politics. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Is this when we get to do the Game of Thrones spoilers? It is, yeah. We just wait We wait for and the intro music to end. Yeah. And then you just list off everyone who dies. And then we, <laughs> right. go to, we go to black. And then I do the Avengers spoilers too. So it's, it's pretty good. <laughs> next week. Next week. Have you seen the new movie, Avengers movie? I have. It's really yeah, good. I gather it's good. Have but you I seen didn't it? see the last one, so I wouldn't understand it. Right? Okay. Half of the people in the world died at the end of the last one. Did they bring them all back? Yeah, they did.